A reading from Luke. While they were walking about, while they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and terrified and thought that they were seeing a ghost. He said to them, Why are you frightened? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While in their joy they were disbelieving and still wondering, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, and I bring greetings on behalf of your sister church, Calvary Baptist Church in downtown Washington, D.C. And on behalf of my pastors, the Reverend Sally Surratt and the Reverend Maria Swearingen, I give thanks for this community of faith, McLean Baptist Church. I give special thanks for so many friends here, especially my friend and colleague who y'all recently ordained, the Reverend Jennifer Hawks. Uh, We've worked together so often. Uh, I was in the inaugural class of the BJC Fellows that she helped to put together, and so it's grateful to be uh, here in her church and in the same place that ordained her and continue to cultivate her as a leader. I'm also so grateful for Reverend Meg Thomas Clapp and Reverend Katie Morgan Harper, who have been extremely hospitable and gracious and generous by inviting me to be here on this Sunday to preach. I deeply appreciate it, and I'm happy and honored to stand in this sacred desk, this sacred place, this beautiful sanctuary to be surrounded by this amazing choir and your beautiful voices. I give thanks and say alleluia indeed. To Katie and to Meg, I'm so grateful for you all. You all have I've stood where you stand right now, Katie and Meg. At our church, Calvary Baptist Church, we were in an interim period, as we called it, or a transition period, as we called it, for about three years, most of my time there. And me and the other associate pastor at the time, Reverend Erica Lee Simka, uh, were virtually the interim pastors of the church, bearing much of the weight of church leadership on our shoulders. And while it was a deeply challenging experience, it was also a deeply profound experience. So I give thanks for this experience for Meg and for Katie, and I give thanks to you all for supporting them, for praying for them, for loving on them, for looking to them for leadership, for guidance, for wisdom, and for insight, even though you were in this wilderness period. And I want to encourage you as a congregation to not despair in this wilderness, for it's in the wilderness that we are reminded that God goes before us like a pillar of fire. It is in the wilderness where we know that God is providing us with manna. God is leading us to sources of new water. In the wilderness, our greatest leaders are cultivated. 
Moses and Joseph, Miriam and Joshua, Esther, Ruth and Naomi. And I know that God will provide for you all in this wilderness period too. And so I give thanks for your leadership, Katie and Meg, and I lift you up in prayer. And I actually invite the whole congregation to pray with me now as I pray for them and as I offer a word of prayer for you, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ. Gracious God, we give thanks for this place, for this, these people, this church, and the leadership of this church right now, O oh God. God, we pray for this community of faith, O oh God, that they might be witnesses to all that you do, to all that you call us to do, to all that you ask us to do in this world, O oh God. God, we say a special prayer for Katie and for Meg right now who lead this congregation in such a phenomenal way. God, we pray that even during this wilderness period, O oh God, that you might let your mantle God, your sweet, sweet anointing fall fresh upon them. God, that just a little bit of what you've called them to do, God, that may bubble up and that all of us, God, through their energy, through their vigor, through their eyes fixed on you, might come to see you better, oh God. God, we pray for the hearts and minds, the bodies, the families that are gathered here, oh God, for all the people that we are connected to, God. God, you know the meditations deep in our hearts, God. You know the things that we struggle with, the things that keep us up at night, God, the things that we wake up with in the morning, God. You know those meditations. So speak to them deep in our hearts, oh God. And God, now allow me to decrease so that you can increase and let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable and pleasing unto you. In your name we pray. Amen. I know y'all don't know me that well, and I haven't discussed with Katie and Meg about how good you all on pop culture, but I'll give this story a shot. When I was in eighth grade, and it's a true story, it really is, and I always have to preface it this way because no one believes me. When I was in eighth grade, my mom and my sister and I were flying from my hometown of Baton Rouge, Louisiana to Newark, New Jersey. It was my first time on a plane since my family came here from Liberia as a baby, and I was super nervous and anxious the whole flight. But overall, it wasn't so bad. We had a long layover in Charlotte, and we didn't land in Newark until about 10.30 at night. By the time we landed, the airport was mostly empty. Most of the people on the flight quickly shuffled out of the airport and were headed home. However, my mom and my sister, they lingered quite a bit, taking their time to get their carry-on off, to get off the plane. And as I thought we were finally headed home, they said they needed to stop and use the bathroom. I was annoyed. After all these hours of traveling, I was just trying to get to my cousin's house to relax, but nonetheless, I held their bags as they went to the restroom. Now, this is the part that people don't believe. As I stood outside the bathroom waiting for my mom and my sister, I saw four figures walking towards me in a distance. Two of them, real big men dressed in black suits, and then a taller guy who looked athletic, and a woman who was dressed really nice. I wondered if they were famous. The closer they got to me, the clearer they got, and now I started to lose it. I could fully recognize and see, are you ready for this? I hope your pop culture is good. Jay-Z and Beyonce walking down the terminal in Newark International Airport in 2002. I looked left and I looked right and there was no one there but us. I froze because they were famous. 
But no one was there to see this. It was especially special, though, because although they were famous as individuals, no one knew that they were together at the time. So I had the scoop before everyone else. I got the first glimpse, and I was blown away. So they walked down the aisle. I didn't have a camera phone, so I couldn't take a picture. Jay-Z nodded. Beyonce smiled. And off into the terminal they went. Now, of course, immediately after they disappeared, my sister and my mom come out of the bathroom. And I tell my little sister, you would never believe who just walked by. I told her the story. She rolled her eyes. We got our bags and we left. The one thing that I will say is to this day, I still tell this story, and my little sister at least agrees that I told her this right after she came out of the bathroom. She won't agree to anything else. No one believed me. I was the only witness to this event. My sister was deeply doubtful, and in fact, everyone in my life, including my wife, have doubts about this story. We meet our gospel characters in a similar place today, and I have to say I have a lot of compassion for them. The resurrection had just happened. We're in the final chapter of this two-part book of Luke and Acts. We're right here where Jesus has suffered, died, been crucified, and now has risen. The story immediately preceding this is the story of the Emmaus Road account. Well, you know this story where Jesus appears to the disciples walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. He asks them what is going on, and they tell him, well, have you not heard about this prophet, mighty in word, indeed, who was crucified? But then on the third day, he rose, and some of the women who were at the tomb said the body was no longer there. He told them this story. They told him this story, and he continued to walk with them, right, the Emmaus story. They invited him into the house to have a meal, and the scripture says that when he took the bread and broke it, they recognized him. He disappeared and then was gone. They immediately left the meal, ran back to Jerusalem where they found the other 11 gathered in an upper room. It is in that upper room that our text begins today, where these disciples have just run back from Emmaus to Jerusalem, where the other disciples are gathered in the upper room, where Jesus enters and says, peace be upon you. Before I go further, it's so beautiful, because everywhere Jesus goes, Jesus speaks peace to that household, peace to that community, peace to that family, peace to that relationship. Jesus meets them there and says, peace be upon you. And I'm sure they're struggling to believe this. The story tells us, the scripture tells us that a few people had encountered Jesus before. Someone here, someone there, the folks in Emmaus. But they still doubt as he stands directly before them. They are frightened and terrified. And Jesus says to them, do not doubt, but look at my hands and feet. And yet, even when he says that, they are still disbelieving. So the story continues, then Jesus takes the bread and the fish, and it's in the bread and the fish, the meal, that they recognize him. They're amazed, and they begin to see him. The scripture goes on and says that he begins to teach them to open their minds about the scripture, about what had to happen to him. Jesus taught them to open their minds about what needed to happen to him. And this is truly a profound experience for, this, for the disciples. Not only are they with Jesus again, but they're with Jesus again like they were with him the first time. 
Not only do they see Jesus, but they see him in the meal, the taking of the meal, the opening of the mind, the fulfillment of Scripture, the teaching and interpreting of Scripture. One commentator, Katie, on the Gospel of Luke puts it this way. In Jesus' final appearance here, we see him organizing the life of the church before he leaves. Preaching the Gospel, interpreting Scripture, breaking bread, and proclaiming peace. Jesus is organizing and legitimizing the church in these final moments. Friends, don't miss this. All of the things that we do as a church, all of the things that Meg and Katie help us lead us in or go back to these final instructions of Jesus. It says Jesus taught them to, and asked them to open up their minds. You know, that's probably the most underappreciated thing about Jesus. Jesus taught them and opened up their minds. Often when you follow Jesus in the scriptures, he's either teaching people in the synagogues or teaching people in the streets. He's asking them to open up their minds to new ideas, to new ideas about religion, to new ideas about society, to new ideas about compassion, about peace. So he seeks to do that here. Jesus is underrated as a teacher. He's a teacher and a critical thinker. He asked them to open up their hearts and open up their minds, and Jesus asked his church to do the same thing. And even though that is the goal of the church that Jesus himself organized, we fall short of this goal tremendously. Very few churches interpret scripture in a way that opens up minds and hearts. Okay, so y'all are looking at me a little crazy now, so let me make it plain. Right now in America, the dominant narrative of the church is that we are a closed-minded and closed-hearted institution. Right now, we think that the rules that, we have been, that have been given to us are forever stuck in place because I guess God gave them to Abraham or perhaps God gave them to Moses or perhaps God gave them to the judges or perhaps God gave them to David or perhaps God gave them to Peter or perhaps God gave them to Paul or perhaps God gave them to my grandmama. We think that because those rules that we have, and I guess because we think that we're stuck with them, and so even as culture progresses, even as we learn new information about science and how the body works and how society works and how our emotions work, we often refuse to change the church, to be open to new ideas, be more, to be more compassionate in the church. And instead, we wage actual crusades against progress and justice. We wage crusades against people who understand relationship to God differently. We wage crusades against people who love differently. We wage crusades against our gay and lesbian, transgender, bisexual, and queer friends. We wage crusades against those lives that claim that their lives matter in a deeply racist, sexist, or xenophobic country. I know I'm preaching now. Instead of listening to these voices and the potential that they might have to expand our minds and open up our hearts, we double down 
on bigotry, on hate, on exclusion. I know I know what I'm talking about. And Jesus asked his church, the one that he started, the one that he came back from the grave to remind. That's big, y'all. To be more open-minded. To be more open-hearted. There's a church in this neighborhood, many churches, in fact, in this neighborhood that think that men, that only men should be pastors. Jesus didn't organize his church for us to think that way especially when the women were the only ones that held the gospel on the first part of Easter Sunday anyways. Jesus didn't organize the church for it to be stuck in antiquity. Jesus organized the church to be a source of goodness, of love, of truth, of justice. Jesus organized the church so that the world might be more open, might be more compassionate, might be more loving. Y'all, Jesus' last words were to were not just to speak to our doubts about resurrection, but Jesus' last words were to give us instructions on how to live as the resurrected people. And living as a resurrected people means having open hearts and open minds and being surprised to what God might do to you. Being open-minded and open-hearted means that we ought to look to the life of Jesus for our moral clarity. If doubt arises, we ought to look to the life of Jesus for our moral clarity. If doubt arises, we ought to look to the life of Jesus for our moral clarity. If doubt arises, we ought to look to the life of Jesus for our moral clarity. Sure, preacher, you've repeated it four times. It may sound simple, but it's not all that simple. Some say if doubt arises, we should look to legalism for our moral clarity. Others say if doubt arises, we should look to tradition for our moral clarity. Others say if doubt arises, throw the whole thing out. We don't need it anymore. But Jesus' argument here is that if doubt arises, look to the life of Jesus. For it is in the life of Jesus that we might find the things that we need. And my friends, we are drowning in a sea of doubt. And not just about the resurrection, but whether what the true moral questions of our time really are. We're drowning in a sea of doubt as the, as the, as, as the leaders of our faith argue and try to make our faith seem to be about exclusivism and give a pass to politicians who aren't true moral leaders, and instead of using the prophetic voice, they sacrifice their moral voice for power in the empire. And Jesus didn't organize his church that way. Jesus organized his church so that we might be witnesses to the things that his life helped transform, to the ways that his life penetrated our society. Jesus calls us to be witnesses to his own life. And how it transformed the communities around him. I'm talking, y'all. I'm almost done. James Baldwin, in his classic text, I Am Not a Negro, which was made into a film, talks about his relationship to Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and Medgar Eggers. While each of them knew of each other, these are all three civil rights leaders in the 1960s who were assassinated, they weren't friends with one another, but James Baldwin was friends with all three of them. Baldwin said that he felt like his 
life was to be a witness to their life. He said, I learned that the line which separates a witness and an actor is a very thin line. Nonetheless, it is real. He goes on to say, I wasn't a black Muslim. I wasn't a Christian, nor was I in the NAACP. But I also didn't have to deal with what he says with the criminal state of Mississippi, the vicious mobs trying to lynch people. But his job instead as a witness was to write the story about the things that Martin and Malcolm and Megger were doing, to testify to them, to get the story out. His job as a witness was to tell the story, to get the story out. How will you be a witness to the story of the life of Jesus? How will you be a witness to the story of the life of Jesus? My friends, the story of the life of Jesus is so rarely known that so many people in our world think that Jesus has no relevance for our world. So many people broken and hurting, so many undocumented members of our society, so many women hurting to tell their stories, so many poor folks fighting just to make a living, so many teachers striking, so many things happening in the world, and so few of us are being witnesses to the way that Jesus can transform our society our lives, our families, our communities. So few witnesses exist in our churches these days. We've given over to cynicism, to corruption, to shallowness, and we've let the brokenness of our world unfairly influence us. But the word on this second Sunday of Easter, the word every Sunday, in fact, and the reason we love Easter is that all God needs is one witness to attest to God's power. All God needs is one witness to attest to the resurrection. All God needs is one witness to say early that Sunday morning, Jesus got up with all power and spoke peace into this world. And all we need right now, just a few people to witness that life that Jesus lived, that love that Jesus had, that compassion that Jesus embodied, that mercy that Jesus gave freely. All we need is some folks to attest to that right here and right now. For bigotry or violence or xenophobia or fear or none of the things of the former things will last. For the phenomenal and peculiar life of Jesus speaks to us today and proclaims that he needs some witnesses to attest to the things that he did, that we might know that he'll do it for us too and do it right now. Amen, and God bless you.